Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Leanne Bida Sumumse Simpson, Amichi Sagnagek Nishnabek scholar, writer, and musician. Simpson has worked for over two decades as an independent scholar using Nishnabek intellectual practices, teaching at universities across Canada and the US. She earned a PhD in interdisciplinary studies from the University of Manitoba and currently teaches at Jachincha Center for Research and Learning in Denende. Simpson is the author of numerous books, including As We Have Always Done, Indigenous Freedom Through Radical Resistance, which was awarded best subsequent book by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. The novel Noom Piming, The Cure for White Ladies, named a best book of the year by the Globe and Mail, and shortlisted for the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction. A Short History of the Blockade, Giant Beavers, Diplomacy and Regeneration in Nishna Begwin, and the forthcoming Rehearsals for, Liver for Living, a collaboration with Robin Maynard. Simpson is also a prolific musician and performer. Among her four albums is the award-winning Theory of Ice, released in 2021. Simpson will give a virtual talk on Rehearsals for Living on April 5th, 2022, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-2022 Clark Lecturer. Thanks, Leanne, for coming on the show. We're delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to, to visiting. So tell us a bit about your background and your journey to where you are today. Sure. Um, first, Ani Kinawaya. Hello, everyone. Um, I am Michi Sagi Kinishnabek, and I'm a band member of Alderville First Nation. Um, I started my academic journey in biology and sciences at the University of Guelph. And I then went on to do a master's degree in behavioral ecology from Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. And during that time at university, I became really interested in, in race, in uh, race relations, in politics, in Canada, the, um, the Oka crisis, which was an uprising of uh, Mohawk warriors from Ganawage and Ganasatage, um, protecting their land from the construction or the expansion of a golf course was something that was taking place when I was an undergraduate. And it was really a, a sharp and poignant kind of political education. So I think that I had been drawn into science because I liked spending time on the land and I liked being outside. Um, but it was becoming very clear to me that ethically and philosophically, um, science wasn't the right, the right spot for me. So after I, I graduated with my MSc, I worked with an Indigenous political organization in Northern Ontario that put me in contact with, uh, with my lands, with um, the Great Lakes, and with a whole bunch of wonderful, amazing Anishinaabe elders who spent a lot of time with me on the land and who I saw thinking inside a different um, set of assumptions, a different set of practices who were world building and, um, and living in this beautiful Anishinaabek world. And that was something that was striking. And I think it changed the course 
of my my life and my career because I just wanted to fill myself up with as much of that as possible. I wanted to learn how to think inside my culture. I then went to the University of Manitoba and did a, a PhD. I wasn't in the program for very long because at that time there wasn't a lot in post-secondary education for Indigenous students and in Indigenous studies. And then I, I returned back to, to my home territory and took a job at Trent University as a, as a professor. And I felt very conflicted um, in that position because I loved being inside my territory. I loved being able to spend time with, with my elders. I loved to be able to spend lots of time out on the land, but I found it difficult. Um, all of the kind of pressures and constrictions of the Western institution. So after my, my first um, child was born, I, I left the university and, and charted a career and a practice, a set of practices, I guess, artistic practices and intellectual practices that are based um, in the land and in Anishinaabe thought. Um, so I think those kinds of, those are sort of the markers that, um, that stand out to me when I'm sort of sifting through my background and my journey and figuring out how I got to today. So let's talk a little bit about your approach to education. You've written about and practiced land as pedagogy, and you've already started to say a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit more about that aspect of your work. I started to spend a lot of time with um, Doug Williams, who's an elder from Curb Lake First Nation, which is a community that's very much related to the community that I come from. Um, we started doing ceremony together. We started tapping a sugar bush. We started hunting. Um, we, we harvested minoman or wild rice in the fall, and we became very, very good friends. And through this, this kind of decades long relationship now, um, I've learned a lot about how to think and live inside Anishinaabewan. I've learned a lot about our ethics. I've learned a lot about the kinds of worlds that my ancestors built. And all of that knowledge came from this sort of relationship and this participation, I think, in Anishinaabe practices where the ingredients were the land, um, someone who, who knew the practices, and then me, this younger person. There wasn't books, there wasn't curriculum, there wasn't learning objectives, there was no rubric. I wasn't evaluated. And that to me became probably the most important education of, of my life. And so in thinking about how my ancestors would have shared knowledge, would have supported um, younger folks in terms of their own path and figuring out their gifts and how they were gonna contribute to the community and becoming excellent and proficient at um, whatever those gifts were in order to be able to give back to the community. Um, censoring land as the pedagogy became something that um, it was very obvious to me that this was a key kind of foundation to, to um, building Anishinaabe worlds. And so I've spent a lot of time um, doing that sort of work at the Chinta in the North in my own territory um, through language nests and language learning work, just simply getting people out onto the land with elders and deepening um, the relationships that, that come from that. 
So you've just mentioned Dechinta, you are a faculty member there. Tell us about Dechinta Center for Research and Learning. What's unique about it? What's special about it? The Dechinta Center for Research and Learning is um, located in Sambake or Yellowknife in Denende or the Northwest Territories of Canada. So uh, in the far north, it's a land-based um, Dene post-secondary education institute. So we take students out on the land for a week or six weeks at a time, live together as a community, um, making decisions um, using Dene law and Dene forms of governance. The students spend half a day learning indigenous studies type of things. Uh, and then half the day with elders learning, learning Dene um, knowledge and Dene practices. So things like hunting, making dry fish, hide tanning, um, medicine making. And then I think sort of the role of, of the instructors is to help students um, braid those two, those two knowledges together and figure out um, how they explain their experiences and their perspectives as Indigenous people and how to, to carry that forward into the communities when they go back. So we have, um, we have a post-secondary sort of stream where students can earn um, a land-based certificate from the University of British Columbia where our courses are accredited. But we also have um, lots of art arts and culture and language program for, for folks that are not interested in, in the university accreditation, um, lots of kind of community involvement as a way of um, syncing, I think, resources into northern indigenous communities and bush economies and supporting uh, elders and knowledge holders and land-based practitioners. So I think that part of the project is a really interesting part of the project for me. We also have, um, when our students come to, um, to take our courses, we provide uh, a program for their children. And so our programs are family-centered because one of the biggest barriers for Indigenous women in the North to post-secondary education is childcare. So um, we center kind of family learning on the land together and provide um, childcare for while the Indigenous studies components are going on and the classroom components are going on and then support so that kids and parents can participate in the land-based programming alongside each other. So everything you've just said starts to answer my next question, which has to do with your critique of efforts to indigenize the academy. Can you elaborate that aspect of your, of your work a bit? Well, I think that um, educational institutions, state-run educational institutions, colonial educational institutions are designed to, to replicate um, skills and knowledge sets that are important to colonial societies. And so sometimes indigenizing those systems means um, white faces turn into brown faces, but the structures of those systems um, remain the same. And so the kinds of education that I'm interested in are um, education that's going to provide us with the thinking skills and the, um, the practical skills to build new worlds and to meet the needs of our, our community members in a way that is ethical, um, that's caring, that's careful, and that's rejecting sort of these 
tenets of settler colonialism, whether that's capitalism or white supremacy or heteropatriarchy. So I'm interested in, in um, producing graduates or, or people that can be elders, that are language speakers, that have these land-based skills. Um, I'm interested in bringing groups of people together on the land or in the city um, around, a, around kitchen tables or around particular issues and figuring out how to organize ourselves um, to meet whatever, whatever need or whatever issue we're dealing with. And I think those spots, whether they're um, protests, whether they're kind of community organizing projects, whether they're land-based projects, for me in my life have been really generative. They've generated a different kind of knowledge um, for different purposes, knowledge that I think is just as valid as the knowledge that we generate inside the academy. But I think sometimes those that knowledge is just really crucial in terms of our our communities and in terms of the movements that um, that we're a part of. So I think that um, indigenizing. I, I'm I'm interested in more than indigenizing the academy. I'm interested in building different systems. Um, that meet different different sets of needs to build different worlds. So let's talk about the Radical Resurgence Project, which is clearly related to those interests. How do you understand that project and its importance? Well, this book was written as it goes in this kind of writing um, before uh, Trump was elected. And um, it, its publication got sped up after he was elected in, in your country. And so a lot of my thinking at this time was um, within indigenous movements and within indigenous communities, looking at ways in Canada of organizing that were not, that were based on what um, communities and elders and indigenous folks thought were important, not what the state was telling us we needed to do. So it was a way of refusing um, reconciliation or, and the way that that was being framed by the state. It was a way of refusing the comprehensive land claim process that um, had is put forward by uh, the federal government in Canada to deal with um, land. It was a way of disconnecting and refusing, I think, the nation state and um, kind of making a space where we could center uh, Indigenous political practices, Indigenous ethical practices, and think about the kinds of worlds that, that we wanted to build. So it was a way of um, sort of, I kind of think of it in some ways as getting your elbows out and just protecting this space where um, we're not responding to the politics of distraction. We're not responding to the state. We're just saying, hey, we need we're going to figure this out because this is our responsibility to figure out. We have the knowledge, we have the experience. Um, we want to build something that's that's different than this settler colonial system that we've inherited. You mentioned that this book was written before Trump. Do you want to elaborate on how your views have changed in the aftermath of Trump? It's strange in that I was very nervous because it felt like in that moment that the world had changed very suddenly. And I was worried that this 
all this thinking and all this, <laughs> all this work that I had done in this book would no longer be relevant. It turned out that it was relevant and that it was timely. And that became, that was sort of almost an accident. Um, and then I think just in thinking how the world has changed since then, it's been one crisis after another, it's been one apocalypse after another, and the impact of those apocalypse have been more severe for Black people, for Indigenous people, um, for Brown people. And so I think what's changed between um, that book and Rehearsals for Living is that it's become more uh, urgent for me personally to be making the links between um, colonialism and the indigenous experience and what's going on in Palestine and what's going on with the global uprising for black life and what's going on in Afghanistan. And so that internationalist um, component, recognizing that the systems that are um, causing a lot of harm in my community are also causing harm all over the world. And how do we work with um, other anti-colonial movements? How do we um, talk about these issues, frame our movements in a way that's um, legible to, to other anti-colonial movements globally? So that I think is, that's the shift that has become really obvious for me over the last little bit. So you just mentioned uh, Rehearsals for Living, this collaboration with Robin Maynard. Tell us how that collaboration came about. My book, As We Have Always Done, came out at the same time as Policing Black Lives. And Policing Black Lives is an incredibly important book in Canada uh, and beyond, but in Canada, because Canada sort of has this um, kind of belief around itself in terms of anti-Blackness that it's the exception and that things were horrible in the US, but things were, the underground railroad came to Canada and we've never really had a problem. That's categorically not true. <laughs> All of the same problems that the US had, Canada also had. And Robin's book meticulously destroys that Canadian exceptionalism um, in a historical, in a, in a very um, thorough and evidence-based sort of way. And so when her book came out, it blew my mind. And I wished that it had come out a couple of years before because I would have framed as we've always done differently. And so when we got, I, I was invited to, um, to launch the book in Montreal. And Robin at the time was living in Montreal. So I asked the organizers if I could be in conversation with Robin as a way of having these two books come into conversation. And so that was, that happened. And it was a, a wonderful event. And um, I knew that these two books and our two movements and our two communities were linked in a very deep way um, that our experiences with genocide, with colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade were different, but that there were important linkages. And so in my work at Tachinta, um, we uh, were looking at um, solidarity and how the Dene people that we were working with 
in the 1960s and 1970s put a lot of energy into developing um, relationships of solidarity, intellectual relationships, movement relationships with um, with people that were with things that were going on in Tanzania, with um, with Haiti, with all kinds of different different folks. And so we thought of having a solidarity gathering where we brought activists and thinkers and organizers from Canada and the US to um, one of the communities that we work with outside of Yellowknife to to Dada to a fish camp and to spend a few days just visiting and getting to know each other in that very, very different environment. And so Robin was one of the, the folks that we we invited and her and I had lots and lots of amazing conversations on this frozen lake while eating muskox around a fire. And we planned on um, continuing and deepening our relationship. She now lives in Toronto and I live about two hours outside of Toronto. So we had all of these plans and then the pandemic hit. Um, and so we decided to start writing letters to each other through the beginning of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and through um, the global uprising for Black Lives. Um, so through those moments, so for about the first six months, we wrote letters back and forth and those letters became the, um, the book rehearsals for living, which is coming out in June and which I'll be talking about in the, in the lecture, I'll be sharing my first letter. Thanks so much. Um You've talked about um, diplomacy with other uh, liberatory movements like the Movement for Black Lives. You're also an advocate for centering two-spirit and queer indigenous people and indigenous methods in the work of resurgence. Tell us about that aspect and why that's important. I think that's important because in the early, very earliest stages of, of colonialism and colonization, two-spirit, queer, gender-fluid, um, trans, indigenous people were really targeted by, um, by settlers, by explorers, by missionaries for elimination. So um, the indigenous conceptualizations, Anishinaabe conceptualizations of gender, um, we had more than two genders. We had more than than just uh, church monogamous relationships in terms of relationships orientations. There was more sexual orientations than just heterosexuality. So there was this um, spectrum and there was this diversity that was normalized in our nation and in our communities that became targeted very, very early on um, by colonizers as something that threatened um, their ability to um, replicate the kind of build and replicate the kind of state using family um, that they that they wanted to and that they needed to in order to get the resources from the land. And so I think that those bodies of knowledge, I think that those um, people, those relationships, the work that the two-spirit and queer community has done since um, contact in order to make sure that um, they're still here is an incredibly important part of, of rebuilding in the kind of, of worlds that I want to rebuild. So I think centering um, gender, centering two-spirit queer and trans folks in um, world building 
movements is really is really important for those reasons. You are a very prolific writer. You write in a wide range of genres, essays, novels, poems, song, but in all of your work, storytelling is central. Tell us about Nishnabek storytelling, its methods and significance. Nishnabek storytelling is, is something that's um, really just a, a glue in our, in our communities. Um, stories, I think, are are one thing that really strengthens our relationships to our land and our relationships to each other. Stories, um, we have two different kinds of stories. We have sort of sacred, um, almost theoretical, the big, the big stories that are often staged for, for winter and for ceremonial time. And then everybody has their own stories based on their own experiences and their own adventures and antics. And those stories are really important because it encourages everyone in, uh, in the family, everyone into the society to use their voice and to name their experience and to share that experience, not as the truth, but as their truth. And that I think is a really important first part in terms of building consensus and building a decision-making process that sort of minimize conflict, but um, also build what, um, what our elders often say will be like an eighth understanding, a new understanding. Um, and so storytelling, I think, becomes a source of joy, a source of humor, a source of, of happiness. Um, not all our stories are, are legible or easy to understand. Um, a lot of them are layered um, so that you have a, a literal version that's, um, that kids can understand. And then as they carry those stories and work with them inside their bodies and inside their lives, they start to understand the deeper concepts. They start to understand the metaphors. They start to understand how those stories are related to other stories. And then finally, when you get kind of elder storytellers, they're sharing those stories through, you know, five, six, seven decades of, of experience. And you get a plurality around how stories are told, different versions of stories, so that everybody, all of the diverse folks that make up our communities can see themselves inside the stories. So yeah, I really love stories. I get a lot of, I get a lot of joy out of out of our stories and a lot of meaning out of our stories. And I think that's one thing that um, we're really encouraged to insert ourselves into the story and to, to work to find meaning that makes sense to us um, as individuals where the stories are also a communal. So there's a really interesting interplay between individual kind of self-determination and experience and then that of, of the larger community. Would you give us a brief sketch of your most recent uh, book-length story, Noom Piming, The Cure for White Ladies? Nopiming is a word in my language that means the bush. And when I think of the bush or the forest, I think of it as a gathering site. So there are tree nations, there are plant nations, there are berries, there's birds. Sometimes there's fish and water. There's um, all kinds of different animals. There's insects. There's um, 
all different kinds of life come together uh, and work towards Mino Bamadzuin or bringing forth more life. And so that was an interesting concept for me. And I wanted to write a longer form using Anishinaabe storytelling aesthetics and practices that um, I think built an Anishinaabe world in the present. So I think that was one of the interventions I was trying to make with Nopuming. The other kind of place that the title comes from is um, back in the 1800s, uh, Susanna Moody, who was a white woman, settler woman from England, uh, was living in, in my territory. And she wrote a book called Roughing It in the Bush. And it was uh, it's a celebrated book in, in the Canadian literature canon because it was one of the first books written by a, a white woman. And it's sort of a guidebook for settlers who are coming over <laughs> colonizing me and my people. And so we don't come out, Anishinaabek don't come out too good in it, um, but it's also so celebrated. And so I wanted to use that, that book and that title as a jumping off point and say, um, Susanna Moody and her contemporaries and their white supremacy didn't allow them to see me and my people as the, the brilliant, um, amazing, artistic, creative people that we were. And I want to showcase that in, in Nopaming through stories. Um, so that's the that's what the Nopaming is a reference to the bush and Susanna Moody's work, which isn't then mentioned in the rest of the book. It's um, it's just a jumping off point. So Leanne, we're almost at the end of our time. This will be my last question. What should we know about Nishnabek land? It's under threat right now, which I think is, is all of our land, no matter where you are, from, from global climate change, from pandemics, from conflict, from war, from um, capitalism, from racialized capitalism. And so I think that, um, what I learned from the land is that we need to be building different systems and doing things drastically differently. And so that's also what I'm hearing from anti-colonial movements, from indigenous nations all over the world. And uh, I think that's what that's what the land is, is telling me in a very um, regional, culturally specific kind of way, but it's an echo, I think, of what I'm hearing from, from all kinds of other people on the planet. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy life to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Miigwech. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Leanne B. Demose Simpson, a Michi Sagbegek, a Nishnabek scholar, writer, and musician. Simpson will give a virtual talk on rehearsals for living on April 5th, 2022, at the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-2022 Clark Lecture. Thanks so much for watching.